Hey, hey, this is Michael Murphy, and it's time to get into the music. Today's show is brought to you in part by WCZR Code Zero Radio, your go-to for the best alternative and indie music. Find them at live.codezeroradio.com or download the free Code Zero Radio app. And now, let's get into the music. Well, hello everyone. This is Rob, and thanks for tuning in to Into the Music. Whether you're a regular listener or hearing Into the Music for the first time, please consider subscribing to the show. This helps keep the podcast going, and you'll be sure not to miss an episode. Subscribers will get a shout-out and a chance to make an appearance on the show. Just use the link in the show information. My guest today returns after only a few short weeks since his first appearance on the show. Now, if you'll recall, Michael Murphy made his Into the Music debut with Steve March Torme to talk about their two concerts called Tumbleweed Reconnection. Now, this was a complete performance of Elton John's classic Tumbleweed Connection. Those concerts took place on October 13th and 14th. And so relative to the time that we're recording this, it was only just a couple days ago. But the reviews were absolutely glowing. The people that I saw that attended the concert on Facebook were just blown away by it. So we're going to be talking about those. But here's the deal. Michael is an incredible guitarist, songwriter, and vocalist with a new album called Indigo Jones that really shows just how talented he is. So we're going to be delving into that as well. And with that, I welcome Michael Murphy to the show. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing wonderful, Rob. Thanks again for having me. Uh, I guess long time no talk and long time no see. Um, it's good to be it's good to be back on chatting about the updates. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, you know, the last time you were on, you and Steve March Torme and the band that the two of you guys assembled were in the process of rehearsing and setting up for these Tumbleweed Reconnection concerts. And I got to say, I was at the second show, so Saturday night. It was incredible. Are you guys still as jacked about the two shows in hindsight as you were going into them? Oh, it, it was like it exceeded every expectation we had of it. Um, I mean, Steve and I were talking about it after like a, over a year ago, right before I moved to England. We were just having a casual beer and had this random idea to talk about doing this show. And then all of a sudden we just did two shows of it and it's and just like that it's on to the next project and the band really really brought it they understood what we wanted from the project everyone was on the same page going into it and it was really a massive team effort to get you know the feet to pull this off um and we would have been satisfied if two people were in the audience just because that's how much we loved the music we were playing but we sold out both nights, which was huge, and that really meant the world to us, um, was to be able to play two sold-out shows. Uh, that was the first time the Thelma had done back-to-back shows, um, especially back-to-back opening their Great Hall concert series. And we were so fortunate to not only be you know, the act that opened that up, but to be the first to risk doing two shows. 
and it's kind of still surreal and we're all waiting till you know waiting for spring to come as soon as possible which good lord knows you still have to get through winter but we'll be doing this show again for sure um and we're all very much looking forward to when we can revisit this project but thank you thank you so much for your support with it and for talking with us last time about it and for coming to the show it really it really means a lot to for us to you know have people that enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it was simply an incredible show and i you know the thing what you had just said within your answer there about well, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if there was only two people in the audience because of the love that you guys have for doing this music. And I think that really showed, I mean, not just with you and Steve, but your entire band. And so kudos to everybody. Yeah, thank you. They, they were just the, like, it was just the best. <laughs> yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> Now, the performance of Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection album from start to finish, that was so good. One of the standout songs of that set for me was Talking Old Soldiers. Mm. You and Steve, I mean, you really sold the conversation between the two characters in the song. And how did the two of you actually go about getting it to that point? Yeah, it's a little two-parter. I'm a musical theater junkie. I've grown up in a family that has just been a massive supporter of musical theater. And my older brother is in his second year of his master's at NYU getting a degree in <laughs> musical theater vocal performance. So it's like, I, I came from that background of not only just like performing music, but like actually performing it, which is why I'm like, I'm a big Peter Gabriel fan and everything like that. So Steve also has that love where we we said we should really do this song the justice it deserves because the lyrics are so well written. It, the lyrics honestly provided the best script for us to be able to do that. All we did was follow the conversation of how Bernie wrote that song and just split it up as to where it naturally breaks in conversation. Um, and then in our case, it meant a lot more to have that song in the set at where it did uh, just by happenstance because Steve is 70, I'm 22. And I've been so fortunate enough to have had amazing opportunities playing with him and having him, you know, take me under his wing, trying new things, doing this show. Uh, we were able to play in from not only a theatrical level, but really play into the personal level of our relationship as artists and especially how we approached this project. That kind of was arguably the climax of that because that, that song really brings into to light the, you know, the new and the old and the past and the future, the present, and it deals with everything like that. And that kind of, deals a lot with what we were trying to do with the with the album in the first place. So we we thought we should really break it down and analyze the song and perform it as such. We just wanted to have an excuse to perform theater. <laughs> nice. Well, it was it was well executed. So Thank you. Yeah. Now the second set of the concert was all songs from 1970 and you guys surprised me by including the James Gang's Funk 49. 
Yeah. Yeah. I thought the addition <laughs> of the horns to that song gave it just that little something new that didn't make it, you know, the same old listen, you know, how you've heard, you know, a song, you know, a hundred times. And it's just like that, just mm-hmm. the addition of those horns was so good. Was it challenging for you to nail down Joe Walsh's guitar parts? Oh, that is such a great question. Um, I grew up on like all of those classic rock guitarists, especially like I grew up on Joe Walsh. I remember my dad would sing around the house. The, my Maserati does 185 line all the time. And oh, then yeah. I figured out where that song came from and discovered Joe Walsh's playing through his solo stuff with life's been good. And then discovered James gang and obviously his stuff at the Eagles um, where I grew up playing classical, like, like classic rock guitar is uh, so it was, yes, it's, it's always a challenge to tackle a guitarist like Joe Walsh, because also his brain works in a way that you never really know what to expect from him. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. you have to tackle the spon- like the whole spontaneity of his playing. Um, but also my brain works in a way where I have to tackle the spontaneity. So it kind of works a little, a little too well. And fortunately, this totally happened by accident. Uh, about a month ago, I was out in New York and went to see the Eagles farewell tour at MSG mm-hmm. and cause Steely Dan was opening for them oh, and I'm the biggest Steely Dan nerd. <laughs> and so I had the t- opportunity to see this. Was my, this is my first time actually seeing Joe Walsh live in person. Um, and I had the opportunity to see them do funk 49 in person. And then it made sense. You know, that moment when it clicks, it's like, you go, okay, now I get this. Mm-hmm. I get this whole thing. And I absorb, my brain is very much a sponge and I try to absorb everything like that where I went, you know, even from where he's picking on the guitar, it just like made sense to me. Um, So that's a song that I just in love with. And when we were talking with Ken Skitch about ways we can, you know, spice it up, we we approached the Eagles live version from a couple of years ago when they were touring uh, with a horn section. And we said, you know what, let's try to, Let's try to spice it up and do that. And it was the same thing. We took the same liberties when we did The Shape I'm In, where it's like the song was written then, but we don't have to play it like it was, you know, recorded then. We can arrange it up a bit. And that's the fun part of working with Steve, too, is we always try to find ways to, you know, make endings interesting, change things up so it's not just the same song that you hear all the time. Um, But that was uh, between that and the Terry Kath guitar parts, I had (laughs) A, my work cut out for me, but I was having so much fun with this project. Yeah, you mentioned yeah, you mentioned Terry Kath, and I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, I am <laughs> right there, you know. And that kind of goes to my next point yeah. here is that the highlight for me in that second set was you guys doing the bands, the shape I'm in, and then you followed right on its heels with Chicago's "Make Me Smile," and you know, and of course, "Make Me Smile" has one of you know Terry Kath's most brilliant and well-known solos oh yeah uh, that one-two punch brought down the house what went into determining the set list for that and then the songs that you picked the performance order because you yeah know, that was really well thought out is it bad to answer that we really put the thought was that we would have people on stage so instead of having them leave the stage we can just keep them on it was as simple as that <laughs> we knew we were actually going to end the show with make me smile just cause it's that good of a song. But I said, wait, 
we could get one more person on and bring Tim back out and have the whole band play Take Me to the Pilot and end with Elton John just to close it. So yeah. it literally was just a matter of weeding it down to just like keep the transitions going that we kept everyone on stage. And it just kind of worked that that's kind of where it had to build to anyways. Um, mm -hmm. Steve and I really take a lot of consideration into every song that we play to just understand, you know, is it appropriate to have this many ballads next to each other? Is this going to fit the flow or is this going to be a, you know, a crossroads where it feels like the con because you can, you can end a concert by putting a song in the wrong spot. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had to think about that and the arrangements of both tunes are similar enough where they fit a vibe to just really crescendo to the end of the set. Yeah. Um, but even then it's like, it's fun on my end. Cause I got to keep on my toes. Cause Robbie plays guitar different than Terry and, Terry plays guitar like no one else. And so you have to kind of <laughs> be on your toes about changing, you know, how you approach each song. And um, I mean, I'm the biggest fan of the band and I will like take that, you know, to the grave that I, I, I just, uh, th what that band did to my taste in music and my writing and everything, I knew we had to include that on. I was, when we were trying to decide the whole set list for the entire show, I was determined to like argue with Steve to the end of the days to keep that song. in. I was like, no, you don't understand. They have a live version from the last waltz that has horns. We can have everyone play and it'll be awesome. And then sure enough, we kept it in. And so it, it, it really worked out, but um, yeah, it was an accident of the best accident ever um, of putting those back to back. And it really, we didn't realize what it would do until at the end of make me smile. We both nights, we were fortunate enough to receive standing ovations from the audience. Um, and that was, that was really cool. Cause then we were like, just wait, we got one more song. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's we're not even done. <laughs> that standing O was well-deserved and oh, thank you. You know, and I got to say for my wife and I, her favorite song by the band is the shape I'm in. My favorite oh, song yeah. by Chicago is make me smile. So win, win, you know, that was great. Well, then we did it. We did it for that reason. I guess we deep down we knew that that would be the reason that we put them together. So, <laughs> wow. Now I want the listeners of the, of Into the Music to get to know you somewhat here. Now, yeah, you grew up in Nina, Wisconsin, in a musical family. Your mom is a violinist with the Fox Valley Symphony Orchestra. And your dad also grew up in a house that was filled with music. What do you think you got from each of your parents that got you going on your musical path? That is such a great question. I was fortunate enough. My mom kind of got us involved, and I, I'm I'm the middle I'm the middle brother. So I have an older brother who's um, in music, and then a younger brother who. Um, Currently is not doing music in college, but has been, I mean, we've had a family band together for 11 years, but my mom got us involved doing uh, music at a very young age. Uh, we would do all these things at the Lawrence Academy of Music when we were younger. So I remember my older brother was doing Suzuki strings at like five. And actually one of his friends that was in lessons with him on violin at five is now his roommate in New York. And it's like 360 degrees of crazy music with the family. And my mom wanted a string quartet so bad. So I grew up as actually a classically trained cellist. That's the instrument I've played the longest and I still play it. And so I got all the technical things and I grew up as a Suzuki trained cellist. So I would not only integrate the reading skills, but also integrate my, my ear training. And I slowly realized that I just kept developing a really solid 
you know, relative pitch and understanding of each instrument, which then led me to where I am now playing all the instruments I do play. And then my dad, he's the youngest of six kids and he has five older sisters. And my, my grandma who passed away before I was born had all of them listening to, you know, I mean, they were all growing up at a time when Paul Simon, like had all of his Simon and Garfunkel records. And so they were all growing up with that and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and they would all sing him because they had enough voices to do it. Um, and it just kind of was a lucky thing that they all grew up listening to that, that my dad brought that in. And I remember he would play for us growing up. We'd be listening to talking heads and even REM. I remember, I remember he had a CD of magical mystery tour by the Beatles. And my brother, Jack had one of those CD player alarm clocks in his room. Mm-hmm. And I would sneak into his room because that's where we kept the the CDs. And I would just pop a, a magical mystery tour on and just listen to like the horn lines and listen to all of that. And they've always been supportive of everything that we did in music. Um, it was so much support to the point that we realized we were running a family business, you know, looking back at it, but we, we were just having so much fun playing music that it was like one of those things where you're like, well, what else would we be doing? You know, that's all we've ever really done. Right. Um, and we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of people in the community along the way recognize this part. We've always been compared to the Partridge family, you know, we've just always been the family that has been playing music. And mm-hmm. so having both parents at the end of the day, just be supportive. It just happened to be that they'd supported in both, not only taste, I got so much support on taste in music and exposed to so many great records, but then my mom exposed us to, you know, the actual practicing and technical aspect of it. And I think my grandparents a lot for that too, because it was the same thing. Like I remember, and that was just art in general. Like we would go down to the Milwaukee art museum with my grandparents all the time to just be exposed to good art and, for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer because I just loved art. I thought I was going to either be that or an animator because I just so used to, I would just draw all the time. And so I realized it just led to this creative brain where my brain processes things now through a way of just creating music. And it's literally because I don't know what else I would be doing because um, it's so, it's like DNA ingrained now to this point where it's, I, I really do not know what else I would be doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now you recently graduated with a music degree from Lawrence University mm-hmm. here in Appleton. And part of working toward that degree was recording an album of original music. You released the album just under a month ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um Yeah. And it's called Indigo Jones, a title that I think is just killer. I love it. Oh, thank um, you. For a debut album, there is yeah. a lot packed into it. What I would like to do is just kind of start by taking a listen to the lead-off track. Yeah. This, this is Michael Murphy with Traveler. We'll be right back after this short break. Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. 
streaming sites that just seem cold and impersonal add a live human to your routine and join me every monday and thursday night at 7 p.m central as i introduce the latest submissions added to the wczr rotation i'll give you backgrounds influences and noteworthy information to each new artist during my show zip code zero on wczr code zero radio.com or you can download our feature-packed app zip code zero on wczr code zero radio now, we've talked about it before, Michael, but you have an affinity for the band and Robbie Robertson's writing. This album has that vibe. It, it's not necessarily in every song, but the band's influence on you keeps popping up throughout the entire album. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, they present this vessel to write for the soul, you know, um, it's why I love Robbie and it's why I love, um, even like Jeff Tweedy. Um, they're all writers that I look at that go at the end of the day, they write for what they need to say. If that changes stylistically great, but also it's like at the end of the day, it's, it gives you enough to fill you up so that I, cause I, I'm a firm believer that when I'm working on a song, it's almost as if I'm like dating it, you know, like I have to, go, am I going to commit to you 
long term to play you like <laughs> do mm -hmm. i have enough faith in you to play you live in front of a bunch of people right and no great um, analogy yeah it's and i really i really got that from because you think of what robbie did outside the band he was writing everything you like his his solo career was he had so many you know techno pop aspects he was taking influence from later on especially from his you know native american roots and writing things about that and i have to write the same because my brain would just completely scramble if i didn't and so what i learned in my writing process through you know being influenced by robbie and having so many influences outside of that is going okay what different parameters can i set to get the project done but then i can still experiment with the stuff that's going on in my head that i have to get out um and that's why there's elements of it, it kind of has this underlying blanket of this roots rock this kind of americana album but there are songs that are like crazy pop rock there's stuff that's way more elton johnny there's stuff that's like you know allman brothers band-esque led zeppelin appears occasionally it's just like that's how my brain has to process the different things that i experience and stuff otherwise the sound would never you know get out of my head in the first place right. and so robbie really presented that thing of when i really got into what his writing meant of going i have to at the end write for what's true to it's it's soul it's at the end it's it's soul music not in the doo-wop soul sense but it's soul music in the sense of i'm writing from that place and so it will certain things will shift and morph and stuff but that, that's just kind of who i am um which is complicated and hard to market but that's a <laughs> <laughs> that's another thing <laughs> well another thing that's kind of relates to the band about the album is the cover and yeah. it's reminiscent of that work that Elliot Landy did for the band, especially, you know, the family photo on the inside of Big Pink mm -hmm. and and the cover photo for the second album, the Brown album. Mm -hmm. uh, who did the photography for you and the layout work? Because it really has that 1970 vibe dead on. Yeah. So I did the layout work and did everything like that for the same, you know, the same reason. I look so greatly to that vibe because in the end, it all of the stuff I was listening to when I was writing the album out in England was the, you know, like Blind Faith and the Brown album and Tumbleweed, obviously, and other things like that. And so, and to tie into the family photo aspect, my mom actually took the picture. I set it up for her. I took our family chair out to our backyard is where it was taken um, and cropped everything for her so that she just had to click the uh, camera button. Um, but it was like one of those, I was back and I was like, this is the image that I have for the thing. We got to do it while it's not raining because it was like perfectly overcast where the lighting worked out great. And I set up a little thing, but she was still like in her pajamas when I had her take <laughs> the photo. Um so it literally this, this it was a family effort to get that album cover done and then i just i did the rest of the layout and the formatting to get it to the color tones that i wanted the font that i wanted and things like that and there's a lot of artists that i greatly appreciate that have brought that 70s vibe back and um it's just quality music so i, I wanted to capture the art that i was so heavily influenced by and that that was the vision that i had in my head all along for the album cover and i was just pleased that it turned out 
<laughs> that it turned out well enough that you shouted it out. So, <laughs> well, you know, you've got <laughs> albums that have jackets that you wonder what in the world were they thinking, you know. Yes. But being a graphic designer myself, album covers have always meant something to me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, CD covers, you know, in that little small square format are what they are, but that mm-hmm. that 12 by 12 album cover, nothing can yes. replace that. I mean, to me, it's the perfect medium. And to have an album cover that works so well with what you're hearing, that takes some thought and it takes some heart. And yeah, my goodness, I mean, you nailed it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that really means a lot. It was It was one of those things... The guitar that I'm holding in the image is my grandfather's guitar. So that's my mom's dad. And he, I mean, I share, my middle name is his first name. So I share a name with him, but he had impeccable fine motor skills that then appear into everything I do now, whether that's like soldering electronics for guitars, fixing things. Like my brain just works in that way that I, even my song Forgotten Voices was written with him and another friend of mine in mind. Um, that I wanted to capture every aspect of it, even the whole point that the flowers are coming up. Because the album, I tried to, I wrote a poem about this fake cowboy, and then I tried to piece together all these songs that were fitting within this. And it was like heavily influenced a lot by Gaucho by Steely Dan, where it's this kind of like failed hipster thing where you're trying to deal with both like the old and the new, and life and death, and heartbreak, and everything like that, where. I knew that I had to pick those elements to be staged in the piece where it was, even to the point that I photographed it in my backyard because it's so funny. The All of the trees that are in, the, in my backyard are all ash trees that are all infected by the emerald borer beetle. So they're all still trying to like struggle to survive, mm-hmm. but they're all currently dying. So that also actually was playing a big role of why I wanted to shoot it specifically there because it fit enough with what I was trying to write about in the first place. So, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. That's the insight to the album. Because I also think I'm I'm such a big vinyl collector. And so I grew up, like, listening to the albums, but looking at all the things inside the vinyl, you know, who played on it, the images inside, the the covers, the back covers, everything like that all plays a role into something. And if you don't consider the art of the image as well, you know, physical art is what you can do to manipulate landscape, to manipulate eyes, and music is what you can do to manipulate time. And you have to think about how you can marry the two to really complete the full picture to the audience. And so that that was my process going into the whole thing. Right. I was trying to capture that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the album proper here now. Is there yeah. an overarching theme to the album? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, I had to really write about um, a lot of things that I was going through uh, when I was abroad. I was uh, I was having amazing life experiences by, uh, you know, being away from family, from relationships and everything like that. And it was for a long enough time that I had to, I I wanted to separate myself from that and really take in the overall experience. And I was listening to such great music and playing with amazing people out there and was living a couple blocks away from Denmark Street, where all of those music stores are and where all the old, it used to be old recording studios in the old furniture stores, where artists that I'm heavily influenced by were all writing and recording. And so 
the overall theme of this album really kind of dives in a lot of personal loss and understanding and growth of where I need to be going. Traveler was the logical thing to start off the album because I wanted to not only build this character of Indigo Jones as the introduction to the overall poem that I wrote with all, where all of the songs related to, but I also had to give myself enough time to be like, in the context of the broad scheme of that year, I was traveling almost every weekend when I was out there going to different places, um, going to Scotland, going to mainland Europe, going to everything like that, and seeing as many shows as I could to absorb all this art. And I immediately came back from London and flew to the next place and then flew to the next place after that and went on tour with Steam for Christmas and then was splitting time, you know, getting ready to move to Nashville now in the new year. So this whole past year has been this time of placing ideas of travel. And because of that, I have been fortunate enough to build a lot of relationships, but I've unfortunately had to, you know, make serious considerations about what my future looks like. And so I had so much emotional attachment to trying to process all of what I was going through, being in so many places at once. And it was marrying this loneliness, this heartbreak, this everything like that with the music I'm listening to, which conveniently, at least the certain songs that I really have an attachment to really do a great job of addressing that. And so I felt it necessary for me to do a project like that is my very long answer. <laughs> okay. Well, outside of the band, you know, yeah. you had mentioned some of the other artists that you were influenced by in the mm -hmm. creation of this album. So outside of what you've already listed, any others that, you know, we can key in on? Yeah, I mean, obviously you just listen to any of those 70s records and it's just like, that's where my brain always goes to. Um, and even I had elements of artists like Tame Impala, um, where it's fun because I wanted to look at like, okay, how can I marry the old stuff that I listen to? And then also find newer artists that are also trying to write similar to kind of get into the sound of what's going on um, in 2023. Mm -hmm. And because I also want to, you know, be able to sell this commercially. And so it's, I have to consider, you know, where the sound is at now. So I would combine when I, I remember when I was engineering this, it was like combining the elements of these old records with modern production ends of things to just make it sound new. Like Tame Impala, especially it was, it's it, like Kevin Parker, so heavily influenced by the Beatles, um, especially the session era Beatles when they were just recording and it marrying that sound to kind of bring it up to the front. Cause this also was engineered in like a bunch of mismatched studios. I had either portable studio things that I was like bringing an interface to a place and recording it there, or I was doing it in a basement somewhere or doing it in the living room somewhere. So there's a bunch of bedroom pop elements in this. So I had to think about that as well. Um, but obviously I'm a seventies guy. I'm wearing a silk shirt from London right now. So it has to, <laughs> has to be, you know, <laughs> in the forefront of what I'm writing, so. <laughs> well, hey, even the band recorded in a pool house, for crying out loud. Yes, so. <laughs> a pool house. Yeah. Well, you obviously handled the guitars and the vocals on it. Mm -hmm. Who else had a hand in helping you create Indigo Jones? We'll be right back after this short break. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? 
Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to have a dear friend of mine, Wayne Salzman, play drums on it. And Wayne grew up in Nina, went to Nina High School, and then studied at Stevens Point, and then was teaching for the last, I believe, like 12 or 13 years at UT Austin. And he is Eric Johnson's drummer. And Eric, obviously, is it doesn't get much better than Eric. And Eric is a huge influence of mine for just technical proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and having Wayne play on this record, I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by some truly astounding drummers that I wish I could just have in like, and travel the world and play fun music with all the time. And Wayne is amazing. I, I wanted a really proficient jazz drummer to be able to play the lightness that I needed for this to keep the pocket really steady. And he exceeded my expectations of this. And it was just like, I remember having a smile on my face, just listening to like how his snare sounded um, when I was putting this together. It was just like, it it was so much fun to record him. And then uh, the bassist for the album is a dear friend of mine, uh, Ryan Erdman. I was friends with him in elementary school. And then he ended up going to Lawrence with my brother and I as well. And then he plays with the family band now as, as of like the last three or four years. And um, he played bass on a few tunes. I played bass on a few tunes as well. And then my older brother, Jack, did all the keyboard work. And then I helped him with some of the synth parts. So I, I was fortunate enough to play a couple of instruments as well on this. And um, But I really had a solid band. When I performed this album for my senior recital, I, had, I was able to pull the uh, musicians that I had play on the record. So it was really fun to see, you know, from studio to live performance, have the people that played on all the songs still with me. Um, and it was, it was a a big joy to do that. Um, it was a kind of a power, a little power group. I really, I really enjoyed working with all of them, especially getting to work with my brother is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds incredible. I mean, uh, having those three guys, you know, and you gotta think, you know, what a group to have. I mean, cause you really want to have something put together where, everybody's got everybody else's back and boy i yes. got to say that this group certainly has that oh thank you yeah i couldn't agree more <laughs> they were they were the best to work with and i continue to i hope to continue to do other projects with them even when i move so that'd be great but yeah thank you so much yeah absolutely well right now i'd like to play another track and this time the song is my request Give us a little bit of insight as to what it's about and its creation. Yeah, this tune came out of a big place. I was go- I was processing some emotional things um, in a relationship ab- abroad, and I had to kind of address my feelings on what I had to write about. And it was it was really a big song to address what I needed to do about moving forward and stuff like that. And uh, it didn't happen right away, but I it, it did play a big role into you know where I'm at in life now. And another band that I'm heavily influenced by that I love dearly is a band out of New Orleans called the Revivalists. And it's sometimes nice to just write a straight ahead kind of rootsy song to just really dive into how you're feeling. And that's where that's where my request came from was that you know need to address where I'm feeling and 
what better way to do it than some American roots music. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, this is my request from the Indigo Jones album by Michael Murphy.
Now, for a debut album, you put a ton of thought, a ton of heart, and a ton of soul into it. Other albums have been described as having a rich tapestry to them. And I got to say that this is one of those that has it too. So well done on that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, listening to, I'm a big James Taylor guy as well, and Carol King, and those are all artists that just like really hit it home. And Jeff Tweedy has this book called How to Write One Song. And he talks about that. I've got like the, you know, just as I addressed before, just that concept of, writing for you um and those artists all write for you know what they need to say and so i had i i felt it necessary to include everything that was going on i had to give and take there are some that i couldn't include on the project and so they'll be on the next one so <laughs> there you go yeah so thank you you bet now in the new year you have a big life change coming with a relocation to nashville do you have anything lined up down there Right now, um, a couple things. So there's a, a publishing agency that I'm working out on a, a deal with down there. And then uh, the big thing with Nashville is what I've learned from my time traveling down there is once you're physically down in the city, then most of the you know work opportunities and things like that come up. But I, I have a lot of dear friends that play so many different styles of music that are all down there that I just know I'm... I'm I'm very much looking forward to writing a lot. And so I do have some ideas of what I'll be probably doing in the studio, but obviously my big goal right now is to be touring under my own name and getting uh, the Tumbleweed show produced honestly taught me so much about what I can be doing in the long run where I'm very excited to just piece together a couple shows and see what that touring schedule will be like. And I'm actually in the process of writing and recording um, another little EP right now, and with the parameter being that I'm going to be playing every single instrument on the uh, album. So I'm revisiting cello, um, revisiting, I, I play a lot of bass, and so I get to play that, and drums, and piano, and guitar, playing mandolin, banjo, pedal steel, um, just to really expand how I can write, um, and then use that as an as a excuse for employability in in nashville um so i like to write i love to perform i love to help create i love producing where nashville is the logical spot just because of the people that i get to work with do so many different things um where i get to visit bluegrass chops i get to visit roots rock i get to visit country i get to visit uh jazz down there too and so it's i'm, I'm very i'm very excited to physically get down there and see what happens. <laughs> right, right. Now, I take it you'll be making forays back up here to play with Steam and do some other uh, gigging around here? Yeah, there will definitely be a couple times that I'll be back up, and I already know in the immediate future a few of the shows that I have immediately lined up. Uh, so, obviously, to everyone listening to this and to those that follow me, please always, you know, my Facebook and Instagram and Everything is always full of updates of things. And then my website is always up to date with, you know, what shows I'm playing, where tickets are going to be at. I try to post as often as I can to let everyone know. But even then, sometimes it can get a little confusing for people that don't necessarily follow me on the social platforms to find me. But the website is very easy because that's, you know, all my ticket links will be on there and all my tour dates and everything are linked on that. So. I will be up. That's the other appeal of Nashville is because I do a lot of work in New York with my brother and we'll still do that. And I 
still do musical theater. So I'm actually actively looking for gigs in that out in New York. And Nashville provides this amazing central location where if I needed to come back to Wisconsin to play, it's easy. If I needed to go down south, it's easy. If I needed to get to New York or L.A., it's easy. It's so perfectly central, um, which is why it's honestly an ideal uh, area to live if you're doing music, especially touring. So I will be I will be back. Just because Michael's down south does not mean he'll be coming back. <laughs> That's mostly for my family. <laughs> I'll see and, you guys. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned your website. What's the URL for the website so people can look that up? Yes. Uh, my website is mpmurphymusic.com. So all of the updates on that and fun new headshots if you want if you want those as well as fan postcards you can take images from the website <laughs> and before we wrap up here tell us what's in store for you through the end of 2023 and where can folks find your music online either just to stream it or to buy it yeah steam will be doing our kids from 192 christmas tour we start that uh, right after thanksgiving and we do that from basically till christmas and then i have that week to kind of pack up and get ready for the move but um, I'll be playing a couple other solo shows. I'm working out on a show on what seems to be no, uh, December 20th is right now what we're looking at for a Rhythm and Bruce thing. Uh, I, I worked for Mile of Music for the last three years, and Dave Willems reached out and was kind enough to book a uh, you know a Michael Murphy fun Nashville send-off show. So we'll be around the area. Again, all of those are on my website. And then I'm recording a bunch, so there'll be new music coming out soon. I'm actually revisiting a project that my older brother and I wrote during the pandemic. We wrote and recorded a little 10 track indie pop album under the recording band name Hewitt. And that goes up to distribution this weekend and will be out the weekend before Thanksgiving is when we're hoping to get that out. And so I'll have another little album out and then, uh, yeah. And playing a lot and then get ready for the move. My album is on all streaming platforms right now, including iTunes and Amazon music. Um, it's on YouTube music and yeah, Apple music, Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, all of them. And then I am, I am making orders for physical copies as well, mostly because I'm a vinyl guy and want to be able to say you can buy my album on vinyl. But then also because Wisconsin has the best market for CDs, apparently. Like, we're like the one state that people still listen to CDs. So shout out to those that listen to CDs because <laughs> I get paid more than on Spotify. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to a physical copy. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can get you to sign it, you know. and Oh, uh... of course. <laughs> All right. Oh, of course. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk and give us a bit of insight into the album and into Tumbleweed Reconnection. All the stuff you're doing is so good, so good. And I hope that listeners of this show will give Indigo Jones a listen through because they're not going to be disappointed. Well, thank you so much. That, that really means a lot, Rob. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So has my highest recommendation. So, Oh, that's, that's the best. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. You bet. My guest today has been guitarist, singer, and songwriter Michael Murphy. Look for his new album, Indigo Jones, on all the streamers and download services. Join me next time when the string of outstanding Northeast Wisconsin singer-songwriters continues with Jackson Mankowski. 
He'll be here to talk about not just the local music scene, but to give us a glimpse into what is going to be a very ambitious 2024 for him. Thanks for listening, and please share into the music with your friends and on your socials. Every time you share, we really appreciate it. So long for now, and we'll see you next time we get into the music. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Into the Music. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Odyssey.com. Drop us a line on our socials or email us at intothemusic at newprojectx.com. To support Into the Music, go to buymeacoffee.com slash intothemusic. Your support keeps the show going and is always greatly appreciated. This show is copyright 2023 Project X Productions. Join us next time we get into the music. God bless and take care, everybody.